Oh, good morning. Good to have everybody here. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26, we'll be looking at the whole chapter in our time together this morning. As I thought about this passage, I was reminded of a fictitious story of a guy who contracted rabies before there was any antidote for it. And um, he's sitting in his hospital bed. He'd been bitten by a dog, sitting in his hospital bed, and uh, the doc has to come in and give him some really bad news. So doctor came in, and he said, look, pal, you were bitten by that dog. You have rabies. There's nothing we can do about it. You're going to die. And the guy kind of slumped back on his bed. Doctor didn't know what to do, so he walked out. But he was walking by the room a little bit later. He looked in, and the guy was writing like crazy. He thought to himself, that's amazing. I I gave him some of the worst news you could possibly have, and he's, he's writing out a will. I mean, you really have to have presence of mind for that. So he walked in, he said, pal, I'm, I'm just really impressed. You were bitten by that dog, you got rabies, you're going to die. And you have the, uh, I, I'm just amazed that you're writing out a will, that you're able to focus like this. He said, doc, this ain't no will. This is a list of people I plan to bite before I die. <laughs> so my question for you, is there anybody you would like to bite before you die? Now, honestly, I was thinking about this. There's some people in our lives that we don't really want to bite them. We just want to kind of nibble around the edges. <laughs> you know, not an not a, not a all-out bite, but just a nibble. They're, they're annoying. And that's about as far as we really want to go. We feel we have some restraint. But then again, on the other hand, there may be some people, frankly, that you would like to bite before you die. Because it comes in waves on a sea, that, on, on a shore that just never end. They are just coming at you constantly, annoying you, attacking you, being unkind, and you don't know why, and it just bothers you. You know what I mean? Maybe it's a, a co-worker, an extended family member. I hope not a church member, but, but I, I don't know. I don't know what your situation is. Saul is like that with David. Saul is a series of waves that just keep crashing upon the shore. David is a fugitive for 10 years of his life. And best I can track... For about eight and a half of those years, Saul's trying to get him. And it it just keeps coming. In chapter 23, it comes and Saul is after him. Remember the the Ziphites? The Ziphites come and say, hey, he's, uh, he's down. Matter of fact, maybe you don't remember the Ziphites. The Ziphites are down in the area where it says Ziph area. Okay, you see Ziph up there? This is just a map of all the movement of of what we know about from reading 1 Samuel. There's more. 
There's more that happened in his life. This is just what's recorded for us. The, the guy is just constantly on the move. And the Ziphites come up and say, Saul, you can get him. And Saul comes down. And, and, and frankly, Saul is just about ready to get David when he hears that the Philistines are attacking and he has to leave. I mean, David was that close to dying. In chapter 24, again, he hears David's up near En Gedi area. So he, he goes down again, and, and this time in God's grace, I mean, what a scene. They're all backed up in a cave, hiding. How do you get 600 guys in that cave? Must be one big cave. My guess is they're in several caves, whatever. But David's in, and Saul comes in to relieve himself. David cuts off, remember, cuts off part of his uh, robe, and Saul goes out, and he goes out, hey, Saul, you know, I could have killed you. And, 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 and again, God delivers him. But it's another wave that comes. And then there's this little wave that comes through Nabal in the next chapter, chapter 25. Nabal's just really another pain. It comes and whacks him again. And in chapter 26, we get another wave. What I want you to watch for, and it was really intriguing for me to kind of think this thing through. What I want you to watch for is how David handles this particular wave. Because it's different than the others. The others, David's on the defense, just barely making it. Watch how David goes on the offense on this one. And then I want to, what I want us to think about as a group is what ramifications is there for us concerning people that we would like to bite before we die. Does that make sense? So let's jump into the passage. And again, um, if you want to kind of follow the, the waves here or whatever. But, but here's my understanding of kind of what we might call the plot line of chapter 26 and so there's a setting, an inciting incident, tension, re, mini, mini reversal, major tension. So I'm just going to kind of talk our way through the passage, but, but kind of have that behind me as, as, as something we work through. Here's the setting. Any good story has a setting, and this one certainly does. Listen to what it says. The Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying... Now, and one other quick thing. The Ziphites were from the tribe of Judah. This was extended family for David. Do you see that? Nabal was in that area too. So, so it, it, it's even harder. And, and matter of fact, we don't, have, we don't have time to look at it. But if you ever get a chance, Psalm 54 has a little title on it. And it, the title to that psalm is, What David Said When the Ziphites Turned Him In to Saul. So we could have a whole nother message on how does David handle the Ziphites and look at Psalm 54, but we won't. We're just going to focus on what he does here with Saul today, all right? But it bugged him too. It wasn't just Saul, it was also the Ziphites here. All right. So the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul got up and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, and 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Folks, how many people does David have with him? Do you remember? 600. Saul brings 3,000. That's a 5 to 1 ratio. I mean, Saul's thinking, 
I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to beat him five to one on this one. So he doesn't want it to be close. Now look at what happens here in verses three to five, what we might call the inciting incidents. So Saul was on the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road, but David was staying in the wilderness. When he realized Saul had come to the wilderness after him, he ran like crazy. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. David sent spies, and he learned that Saul had come for certain. Then David got up and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul was lying down, as well as Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now, Saul was lying in the encampment, and the army was encamping around him. Can you see this? Okay, so if I can turn this whole stage into Saul's encampment, there's David up in the hills, and he's looking down. And what he notices is 3,000 men. And in the very middle of the encampment, Saul and Abner. What options does David have at that point? <laughs> he could look at his guys and say, holy moly, we better get out of here. Let's just go as far as we can. This is a terrible thing. I mean, I don't know. There's all kinds of things he could say at that particular point. But there's no way to get to Saul. And there's 3,000 men. Look at what happens next. Verse 6, David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, the brother of Joab, this would be his nephew, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? Would your hand go up? 3,000 people in that encampment. Saul's in the middle. Hey, would somebody want to go down? I need, I need a guy to go down with me into the encampment where Saul's at. Any, any takers on that? I don't know about you, but I'd be looking at the other guy. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the army by night. That was smart. That was a good move. And there was Saul lying asleep in the encampment with his spear thrust into the ground near his head. And Abner and the army were lying all around him. Now, I want you to think about something. Suppose you're Abishai, okay? And David says, will you go down with me into the encampment? Saul is in the middle. If I'm Abishai, I'm thinking, okay, you want me to risk my life and tiptoe, not through the tulips, but around all of those guys till we come to Saul. And Abishai is thinking to himself, I will do that for one reason and for one reason only. When we get up to that, to that, to Saul, I'm going to take his spear and I will only need one thrust and I will kill him with one thrust. Anyway, doesn't that make sense if you're Abishai? You're thinking like, I'm going to risk my life for what? And I've often wondered when I read this passage, how did David have this discussion with Abishai in the middle of the encampment when Abishai's ready to kill the guy? What would that have sounded like? I guess quiet. Listen to what happens. 
So David and Abishai came to the army by night. Verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has handed over your enemy into your hand today. So then, please let me pin him to the ground with the spear one time. I will not strike him twice. I won't need to. I'll get it the first time. (laughs) And now, in the middle of the encampment, right, they're having an argument. So, how, you know, I mean, a very quiet argument nonetheless, right? And, and notice what they say. But David said to Abishai, verse 9, do not destroy him. For, do not destroy him, for who has stretched out his hand against Yahweh's anointed one and remained blameless? The, the answer would be nobody. And David said, as Yahweh lives, certainly Yahweh will strike him. Or his day will come and he will die or he will go down to battle and perish. Yahweh forbid me from, Yahweh forbid me from stretching out my hand against Yahweh's anointed one. So then please take the spear that is near his head and the jar of water and let us go. How are you feeling as Abishai? David, I'm risking my life. We're Right? I mean, I don't know what that looked like, but they get down there right where they need to be. And Abishai's thinking like, Gah! and David says, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, I wasn't thinking of that at all. Abishai, you can't do that. It's evil as he is. He's God's anointed king. And it's not for us. Abishai, uh, he, uh, he's talking much quieter than me. Okay. But Abishai, do you remember... How Nabal was struck in the last chapter? When I, in, in the last, not the last chapter, because he wasn't thinking that, but in the, in the, for us, the last chapter. In the last scene, remember how God struck him? God will strike him too. God will either have him go to sleep one night and he'll never wake up, or he'll have him die in battle. We don't have to play God. All I want you to do is get a spear and his jug of water, and let's go. And that's what they do. They grab a spear and this jug of water and they tiptoe out. And they go up to a hill where they're far enough away. And then we're going to move into the next scene. It's kind of a strange story, isn't it? Whatever else you want to say about David. You cannot say that David is on the defensive in this scene. Can you? David is on the offensive And I would argue that David is courageous. He's not wild and and, and out of control like, like Abishai would want him to be. He's totally controlled, but he's courageous as he moves there. You know what the spear and the jug of water would represent? The spear is the way that you would protect yourself against the enemy. And the jug of water was the way that you would provide for yourself out in the desert. So David is taking those two elements, symbolic elements with him, and he's going to go up on a hill, and we're going to move into the next uh, scene. Look at what happens here. Verse 13. Oh, oh, you know something I didn't read to you? Heavens, this is terrible. Verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from near Saul's head, and they went away. And you say to yourself, how did two guys ever pull that off? There's only one way they pull it off, 
Look at the end of the, the verse. No one saw, no one knew, and no one awakened. For all of them were sleeping because a deep sleep of Yahweh had fallen upon them. That's better than Ambium. I mean, that they, these guys were out. They were finished. I mean, they were snoring. And, and so here's David acting courageously as he comes up with this plan against Saul that Abishai is not following at all with, but, but submits to. And a sovereign God is over the whole process, so the whole bunch of them are just wiped out, sound asleep. Verse 13. David went up to the other side and stood on the top of the hill at a distance. That's smart, isn't it, folks? David didn't make his announcement in the encampment. (laughs) He went up on the hill where there's a distance between them. David's no dummy. He might be courageous, but he's not foolish. And I would argue in the second movement. In the first movement, we see how courageous David is. In this movement, we're going to see how wise David is. So he stands at a distance. It's at night. The distance was great between them. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to have a verbal encounter with Abner, who is Saul's commander-in-chief. Listen to what he says. David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner. Uh, will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered and said, who are you that called to the king? In other words, he's saying, you're waking up the king. Because David's going, hey, hey, Abner. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty loud at this point. So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why did you not keep watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy your Lord, the king. This thing that you have done is not good as Yahweh lives. Surely you people deserve to die since you have not kept watch over your Lord, over Yahweh's anointed one. So then, see where the king's spear is in the jar of water and what was near his head. So I imagine at that point, you know, Abner's going like, what? And David says, you know the spear in the water jug? Go see if you can find him. And he's looking all around. And, he's saying, and David's saying, you won't find him because I got him. You might not be able to see me, but I got him both right now. I walked right down there. You're the commander, and you never protected his life at all. You ought to die because you didn't do that. Wow, it's the first thing David says. And it's interesting to me. In talking to Abner, he talks about the importance of God's anointed, Saul, doesn't he? So Saul's listening to all this and finally speaks up. And this would be our second movement here in verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. Then he said, why is my Lord pursuing after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? And so, please let my Lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. You know one of the things that strikes me there, folks? 
That's how thoughtful David is. You know what some of us would do? Hey, idiot! I got your spear, pal! Should have killed you tonight, you jerk! Or something like that. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know. David addresses him in an honorable way. David probes him with questions. And David asks for permission to speak. It's, just a, it's an amazing thing to me. I mean, this guy is not out of control. He's done something very courageous. And now as he wisely tries to reason with this king, he starts talking about Abner and saying, Abner, you should have cared for this king because it's important that you do. And king, it is me. And please listen to me. Again, why, why are you doing this? And then he continues. If Yahweh has incited you against me, may he delight in an offering. But if it is mortals, may they be accursed before Yahweh. Now, I want to explain the first part of that because it's debated and I'll give you my, my take on it. When he says, if Yahweh has incited you to do this, may there be an offering. This is not what David's saying. I don't think David's saying, hey, if perchance I am totally guilty, then as David, I should do an offering to God because, like, I did something wrong. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think he's saying, Saul, that evil spirit that has come upon you again and again, if you're being incited from that spirit that the Lord has allowed to come upon you, that's an evil thing. You're believing a law, something false. The only thing you can do is fall down and, and do an offering to God and ask for his forgiveness. So if it's coming that way, Saul, it's wrong. Confess it. So if it's coming from your advisors, David says, may they be accursed. Well, that's pretty strong language. David, why would you say that? Look at the reason that he gives. For they have driven me away today from sharing in the inheritance of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. And so then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of Yahweh. For the king of Israel has gone out to seek a single flea as, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Do you know what David says? And I, I think this is brilliant. David shares with Saul how his sin against David has hurt David. David says, you are pushing me out of the land of promise. You are pushing me away from the tabernacle. I want to be in the presence of God. I want to be with God's people. And Saul, all you do is push me and push me into a land where people don't even believe in God. Do you know how you're hurting me, Saul? I want to follow Yahweh. Why are you doing this? It's very strong, folks. See, David comes and explains to him, there's no basis for what you're doing. 
And David explains to him, because of what you're doing, you're bringing great pain and sorrow into my life. Look at Saul's response in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, for I will not harm you again. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Look, I have acted like a fool and have made a terrible mistake. Wow. What do you do with that one? The idea of Saul sinning and Saul being a fool surfaces earlier in 1 Samuel 13 and 15 when he acts willfully against God and foolishly and Samuel calls him out on it. In my reading, this is the next time that he says it. So for almost 10 years, he hasn't said this. Now in chapter 23, he says, you're more righteous than I, which is getting close. But this is a little bit different. Here's what I find to be fascinating. Saul said the right thing. But David was wise enough Not to walk down at that moment and say, okay. Like when Saul said, David, I won't harm you. Come back. What if David would have said, okay, here I come. Down with my jug. and right Would that have been wise? That would not have been wise. Because David knows this man's track record. And actually David's right because in the next chapter, Saul's going to go after him again. So David says this instead. He's very wise. Saul says really good things. David says this, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and take it. So I'm not going to walk back down into the encampment. But you can send one of your men over, and I will give them back to you. David continues. Yahweh repays to each one his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh gave you into my hand today, but I was not willing to stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. Look, as your life was precious in my eyes this day, may my life be great in the eyes of Yahweh, and may he rescue me from all my trouble. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will not only do many things, but also will always succeed. And then the end of story, David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. I find this to be a brilliant passage on how David approaches somebody who has sinned against him. There is incredible courage and there is incredible wisdom. I, I want to kind of say it to you like this and then ask two questions and then, then I'll wrap up and I'll be done. Here's the point. 
Rather than retaliating, David courageously demonstrates and wisely explains to Saul his innocence. So why are you doing this? His pain. You keep pushing me out of the land of Israel. His forbearance, under no circumstances will I raise my spear against you. And his faith, God is God. And I will trust in God, who I know in his time and in his way, will do what is just and right. That's that's what this passage is telling us, folks. But here's my question. I have two. First one is this. What does it look like for each of us to proactively demonstrate godly courage and wisdom toward those who jealously hate us? Because isn't that what happened? Saul's whole deal started with the fact that he was jealous of David. And then he started to be afraid of what that might actually meant. And that led to all kinds of paranoia. He created all kinds of scenarios about David. David will try to do this, and David will try to do this. And and then that resulted in all kinds of harmful activity and words toward David. But isn't that how it works in your life? Don't you know people who out of jealousy and fear develop paranoia? And then move toward people in harmful ways. Folks, it happens all the time. So how do you, what do you do with them? Well, if they legitimately repent and ask for forgiveness, yes, there can be be reconciliation. It's wonderful. But what happens when they don't? Or when they merely verbalize these things, but it's not really in their heart? Sometimes all you can do is run. And stay away. David does, right? But in this moment, he asks himself, what does it mean to courageously move back toward them in wisdom? And I have to tell you, if you have somebody like that in your life, you probably won't work that one out alone by yourself. You'll need advice of a godly man or woman who can walk you through that. What does it mean? Uh, there was a book written years ago. Um, I lent it out and somebody never gave it back. And I, know who, I don't know who gave it back. And so I like to nibble on No, no, whatever. But, but the book's called Bold Love by Dan Allender. It was one of the best books I've ever read at a time in my life when I needed to read it. And, and, and one of the things he said in the book that really grabbed me was he talked about the fact that when people do us wrong and they don't repent, there's a variety of strategies to use toward, back toward them. There's not just one. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just run and avoid. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But there's other times God calls us to courageously and wisely Move back toward them, trusting God as we seek to bring truth to bear in that situation. And it's a, they're tough. They're really tough. Okay? Not easy. And if you're there, you probably ought to talk it through with somebody else. Okay? I'm just telling you that. 
So I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't know who that person is that you want to bite before you die. But maybe God wants you to move back toward them with a different kind of a strategy. But here's my second question. How can we move back to them in that kind of a way? And I don't know what else to do but to point you to Jesus. Which is a good thing to do. I mentioned this verse to you last week. Put it up on the slide this week. Would you listen to this? I want to give you two... Because here is Jesus, the ultimate David, who becomes our ultimate model of how to live. And look at what it says. For to this you were called. You know what he's talking about? Responding in the right way when people do you wrong, even though you've done nothing wrong to bring that on. Okay? You mean I'm called to that? (sighs) Yes. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. Oh, what did Jesus do? He did not commit sin. There was nothing he did that brought on what they did to him. Nothing. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten. But look at this, folks. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness by whose wounds you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but you have been turned back now to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You know where it starts with Doug Finkbeiner? It starts by realizing that I was a sheep going my own way with a fist raised up to heaven saying, leave me alone, I can do it on my own. And Jesus said, I love you. (laughs) And it overwhelmed me, and the rebel became a son. And then I'm to look back at the cross again and thank him what he did for me as a rebel. And notice that's what he does for all rebels And that's what he calls for me to do to others that do that kind of thing to me. For to that, I have been called. Folks, this is not easy. I'm not saying, oh yeah, just like, you know, just write a note down, go do it this afternoon. No, this is hard. This is times of prayer and weeping and crying and talking. and It's hard through and through. You don't just turn on a button. But if you know Christ, you've got to enter into this process. You've got to. And I tell you, if you do, you will come out more Christ-like on the other end. Paul was so overwhelmed by all of this. Look at what he says in Romans 12. I just bolded the sections that I think specifically apply to 1 Samuel 26. Listen to this. 
David could have wrote this. Pay back no one evil for evil. Take thought for what is good in the sight of all people. Do you know that's what David did? David looked at the encampment, and it was courageous. It sounds foolish at one level, but it was courageous. I'm going to go walk down, tiptoe through that whole army. I'm going to get right up to Saul himself. I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to take his jug and his spear, and I'm going to go. I'm walking back out again. That's thought. Doesn't it? It's courageous thought. If it is possible, on your part, be at peace with all people. You know, David had to come to terms with that. David would never be at peace with Saul again. That's done. That was done. And David even knew in his confession that it wasn't a confession. Because he would be back at it in the next chapter after him again. But David did everything he could to set up for reconciliation. But Paul's a realist as much as is possible because sometimes it's just not. Do not take revenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, Everybody in here has been hurt by people. Everybody. You either have dealt with it or are dealing with it or should deal with it. So I don't know where you are in that process. But if you know Christ, he wants to set you on a journey that you will look back on one day and say, only Christ could have done that in my life. Will you allow him to put you on that journey? Father, much more than David, as your people who know Jesus, as Christ followers, Father, will you overwhelm our hearts not with hatred and bitterness and retaliation, but with goodness and love and courage and wisdom to move back into very difficult situations for your glory and for the good of your people. Spirit of God, I would pray that you would do your good work in each of our lives. Perhaps... It's somebody on that list of people that I'd like to bite before I die. Do your good work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.